welcome to Criminal Perspective. I'm Chris. On this episode, we'll be talking to childhood sexual abuse survivor Jody Plache. Some people may know Jody's story, some may not. He has a, a brand new book out that he's been working on the past 26 years called Why Gary Why. And we're going to be talking about his book and talking about his life. His experience is pretty unique. In 1983 and 1984, he was uh, molested for about a year by his karate instructor, uh, who was a became a family friend, and ultimately this man kidnapped him. Uh, Jody was rescued by law enforcement. Jeff Doucette, his abuser, was arrested. After Jeff Doucette arrived on a plane from California where he had taken Jody back in Louisiana, he was walking through the airport and Jody's father, Gary, shot Jeff Doucette in the head, killing him in front of news cameras and this footage was plastered all over the media. So Jody's case is fairly well known and uh, Jody went on to become an advocate and educator in sexual abuse, sexual abuse prevention and, and things of that nature and he's done a lot of great work. His new book, Why Gary Why is fantastic. I read the whole thing in one day. So we're going to talk about all this and we'll talk about his life. And uh, he's a very interesting, very awesome guy. And it was a pleasure to sit down and hang out with him for a little bit and and have him and educate us on the ways of how pedophiles go about preying on children. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and throw a couple commercials at you. And then we'll jump to our interview with Jody Plache. Dumb and Busted has been called, quote, one of America's greatest treasures by three out of three hosts of the show. Dumb and Busted is a weekly true crime comedy podcast with stories of exceptionally smart and insanely dumb crimes. Comedian Hunter Donaldson has hailed it as the greatest thing to come out of Portland since comedian Hunter Donaldson, who is me, also a host of the show. Podcasters Allison Copeland and Hannah Ether praise Dumb and Busted as, quote, found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Just more rave reviews from two other people who host the show. Catch us every Thursday and follow us at Dumb and Busted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Crime you later! So, Jody, why don't you start by telling us your story a little bit from... From the beginning, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, let's start with your your childhood, and 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 we'll go into how you met this character, Jeff Doucette. My childhood, I would guess, I would you know describe as pretty normal. Um, I grew up. I had an older brother, and then I had a younger brother, and I have a sister who's the youngest. And I grew up with my dad being like a, a football coach softball coach, basketball coach. I don't know how much he actually knew as far as, uh, you know, like Nick Saban. I don't think he was that, that good of a coach, but he was a people person and he was always around kids. He was always, you know, giving, volunteering uh, his time. And I was five years old. My older brother was playing peewee football. I was the water boy. At six, I started playing, you know, organized tackle football, which I don't think people would probably let their kids do now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I played football. I played softball, basketball. I couldn't play basketball until I was eight, and I was upset about that because I wanted to play basketball. And eventually, around eight or nine years old, I got in a – maybe, yeah, about eight years old, I got into soccer. So, I mean, I'm playing – Football, basketball, baseball. I would leave the football games to go to the soccer games at halftime because, you know, I couldn't be in two places at once. And my dad was always the coach, always there with all these kids. And one of the things that I never noticed until I got older, and, and this was when I, I put a picture of our team photo on Facebook. I think, like I said, I was seven, maybe eight years old. I put the team photo up on, on Facebook and somebody commented on it, and they said that was the only segregated team in Baton Rouge at that time. This was like wow. the late 70s, and I never thought about it. But we would play the Marydale Warriors. They were all black. We would play the Southside Rams. They were all black. We would play the Broncos, the Mustangs. They were all white. But what my dad would do is he would take all the kids that got cut from all those teams, and he would put that team together, and he made sure everyone played. And, and everybody loved my father. My father knew everybody. Well, in fifth grade, I got a flyer to take karate, and I took the flyer, and I threw it in a garbage can. I did, it did not make it out of Miss Marcellus's fifth grade class. I put it in a garbage can as I walked out. Well, my little brother was going to a different school 
but they had the same information and they gave him the flyer and he brought it home to my mother. Well, my little brother, he, he wasn't in, involved in any athletics. And so my mother thought this would be a good idea to get him involved into doing some type of extracurricular activity. So she enrolled me, my older brother, my little brother, and a family friend. She enrolled her son. So it was the four of us. And we went and took two karate classes. And eventually, the guy who was teaching karate didn't show back up. Why Why is that? I read that in the book. Uh, I don't so the, know. Guy, the, the guy just disappeared, huh? Just disappeared. Took the money and ran, I guess. So we thought he was a turd. So <laughs> the names of the people who were taking that little karate, it was like 10 sessions for I don't know how much it was. But anyway, the names were turned over to a man named Jeff Dusit. At the time, he was probably 23 years old, and he had just opened up a karate studio. And he said, we will honor your remaining lessons, like eight remaining lessons. So we took three or four lessons, maybe five. And he told my mother, he's like, look, your kids have potential. Um, we got this tournament coming up this weekend that we fight in. It's going to be in New Orleans. And before we go fight in tournaments, we always get together. We'll go watch a movie. We'll go you know, hang out at the karate studio. And my mother was very skeptical and she told, asked her brother who worked for the sheriff's department to run a background check on him. Mm. And I don't know if he did or not. He claimed he did and said that, you know what, he, you know, nothing but more than maybe you know, a traffic ticket or something. So my mother allowed us to go to the movies. We went and saw the movie called They Call Me Bruce. I guess this is in 1983. And nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The guy seemed like a great guy. After the movie, we went to Chuck E. Cheese. My cousin was having a birthday party there. And everybody got to see him interact with the kids. Oh, look, he's great with kids. Oh, he's a big kid himself. All this was part of the, the grooming process. Mm -hmm. So eventually we started taking karate. Or we started traveling with the, uh, the fighting team. I didn't go on the first trip. My brother and my, my younger brother and my older brother did. And we heard about how much fun they had in Houston. And it was great. And my dad was like, hey, I want to go. So mm -hmm. the next karate trip, my dad came. So it was, you know probably eight kids, my dad and Jeff, and we went to the Galleria, we went ice skating, you know, we were having a blast. Having and, a great and, time. and apparently, apparently at this time, your, your parents were separated due to your father, Gary's drinking. Is that correct? N not yet. Okay. That doesn't occur until the summer of uh, 1983. Okay. So this would have been, if I'm guessing probably March of 1983, we mm -hmm. went to the first karate tournament. And in the meantime, this is around the time where he started testing my boundaries like if for karate he would tell us oh well you know we got to stretch out you got to do a split you got to make sure you're flexible and he would get behind us and he'd put his hands around our waist and make sure we spread our legs out and you know he would touch inside of our uh, thighs and go okay yeah see how it's tight right there you know we gotta get you stretched out and loose and that was just basically testing the boundaries but also getting me conditioned to not suspect that there was anything wrong with that because right. you know he, he wasn't he wasn't touching my dick he was just touching inside my leg so that wasn't that big of a deal well after a couple karate lessons you know again we're probably moving into the end of march he had a, a quote-unquote girlfriend it wasn't really his girlfriend but she had a 280zx and and so he was like who wants to drive so he put us in our lap and or put us in his lap and so he's like working us manual is a yeah it's a stick shift mm -hmm. so he's working the clutch he's working the stick shift and i'm driving i got six other kids in the back of the car and now he does put his hands in my lot now he does start to kind of move his hand around a little bit and i'm freaking out like whoa 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 and then it stopped from yeah from what i from what i read in the book is that he he touched you just enough to where it was noticeable, but then pulled off to where it's like, uh, maybe it's an accident. Maybe, you know. In, in case I said anything, mm -hmm. it, he could say it was an accident. Um, you know, think about your, you know, when you're 16 years old and you're sitting on the couch with the girl and you reach around and you rub her side and then you reach up and you put it on her boob and she doesn't move your hand away. Then you're like, all right, this is cool. So then you can, you know, grab a handful and then she's, Cool. It, it was it was similar. And then if she would have been like, what are you doing? You'd be like, oh, I'm just, uh, you know, you'd make up an excuse. It, it was a similar situation. That's why I hate tickling uncles or tickling adults, because that is a situation where you can get a kid pinned down. You can inappropriately touch them 
And if the child says something, you can blow it off as an accident. Um, mm. I don't know if I said that in the book, but I, I really am not a fan of ticklers. Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. So he's so he knew he knew what he was doing at this point, and you know, kind of still testing your boundaries, but at the same time covering his own ass. So he very much was was extremely calculated in, in his approach to this. Absolutely. And each time I wouldn't react, he would go a step further. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point to where um, we, we were going crawfishing. So he got a hotel room the night before we were going crawfishing. And he literally stayed up all night just rubbing my private parts, just sitting there. And I, I'm trying to pretend I pretend like I'm sleeping, but it really just drove me nuts because I'm like, why would this guy need to fucking leave me alone? But he didn't. And the next day we went and boiled the crawfish and he said, Joe, to come ride with me to the store. And I said, okay. And that's when he said, like, you don't tell your parents what I'm doing. And I'm like, cause I was sleeping. Right. So I'm like mm. doing what? Like I'm pretending like, I don't know what he's talking about. And I think that's when he knew, okay, I've got him. And he, he stepped it up to the next level. We were in a uh, karate trip in Houston and like literally there's a van full of kids. We're riding around. He say, Jody, come here. I'm like, what? So he brings me up to the front of the van. As he's driving, he whispers in my ear. He's like, I'm going to suck your dick tonight. And I'm like, oh, oh, why would you want to do that? I have no clue why he wants it. I mean, I probably said it. Hey, suck my dick. But I've never. Yeah. Knew why? So, so did this did, the, did all of this at this point? Were you just extremely uncomfortable? For the most part, not really, because most of, most of the time, like that whole day we were at the karate tournament, you know, nothing happened. He never touched me or anything. It wasn't mm-hmm. until the ride home that he said I'm going to suck your dick. Now, from the time he told me that till we went to bed that night, I was uncomfortable. And then when he turned the TV off and went under the covers, yeah, then I was uncomfortable. And, it, and I, I think the most honest part of my book is – it took me about two seconds to realize why he wanted to do that. And, and I said in the book, it felt awesome. But I there, made a point to say that don't think that my physical pleasure, that my body was experienced like any human body would do, that I was enjoying the experience. I was not enjoying the fact that a man was sucking on my dick. And, you know, and then, then the funny thing is I didn't know what an orgasm was, but the, you know, I came, I, I didn't, yeah. I couldn't shoot, shoot my load. I, I was too young to have that, but my body reacted in an orgasm and my toes curled, my legs straightened out. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, rem- I remember in the book saying you saying that, you know, physiologically, yeah, it's great. But psychologically, no, I, I, I could be, um, misremembering here but i think in the book you said that like while this was going on you just felt blank nothing um physiologically you did physiologically my body was responding like a human body does yeah you know uh you could have a i don't i don't want to be ageist but i mean you could have an 80 year old granny blowing you and it's gonna feel good (laughs) you you know you could have an animal you know licking on your private parts and it's still gonna create some type of some sensation yeah you know, but in my, my mind, I'm like, what's fucking dude's nuts? Yeah. So, um, but like I said, being, I was almost 11. I was 10 years old when that happened, but being 10 and not knowing why he would do that and not knowing what my body was going to respond that way. It, it was kind of a, it was crazy. I didn't, I was like, whoa, well, from that day on for the next month, he probably would perform oral sex on me every day. Um, and then in May of 83 is when he said, okay, now I'm going to fuck you. And literally my mother had told me, you know, how homosexuals had sex. So I knew that I knew it was going to happen. Yeah. And he, he would perform oral sex on me and then he would have anal sex with me. And he did that pretty much from that day forward till he kidnapped me. And that was in February of 84. When, when he, when he would tell you, Hey, I'm going to fuck you tonight. Did that, cause fear what type of uh what were you feeling at that point i guess the word i could say was disgust because it was yeah it was disgusting um 
one, maybe, no, it wasn't the first time. Maybe it was the second time. I remember he used soft soap. Do you remember that? There was a product. It's like liquid soap now, but it was soft soap, it was called. And he used that as a lubricant. And at first, he really didn't penetrate. I mean, because I was, like I said, I'm yeah. 11 years old. Um, there's really not much you can do at the, at the time. And I remember when he ejaculated it running down my leg and just being just disgusting. Disgusted and thinking like this is the nastiest person I've ever I mean yeah ever met so um but by that time and and this is the kind of the confusing part of why children don't tell but that time I I still thought of him as a friend who was fun to be around and and did fun things with us this 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 is such a reoccurring thing in your book saying that saying that I didn't hate Jeff I didn't want anything bad to happen to him I just wanted him to stop molesting me you and you say over and over he, he'd be such a great guy if he wasn't a fucking child molester but unfortunately he was a child molester and that's why he was such a great guy to kids yeah, yeah. I'm 47 single I don't want nothing to do with kids I, I probably throw my nieces and nephews they live across the street <laughs> out once a week when they come over like yeah y'all go home to your mom like I, I I'm, I'm trying to have quiet time yeah um, but that's the, the the sad thing about it is by the time these people start molesting children, they've already gained the trust of the family. They've gained the trust of the kid, and they seem like a great person, and they test the boundaries to make sure that they could, you know, justify their accident if per se if they if they ever get caught right. or if the child ever says, like, what are you doing? You're touching my private parts. Oh, my bad. You know, it's an accident. Mm-hmm. So, but that that's kind of like, what confuses people is like, why didn't I tell? Why didn't I say anything earlier? But think about a battered woman. Why do they keep going back? Why do they keep going back? Because they got emotions. They're feeling this guy. What? They, they think he can be the, the Prince Charming he was when they first met. And they think that he'll change. But normally there's this controlling prick that ain't going to change anything. There was There was some... Some more brainwashing techniques on top of this, though, on on Jeff's part, making you feel guilt uh, a lot of the time. I remember recalling that that's a very reoccurring thing, a tactic that he would use against you. Okay, so in the July of 83, we fought in a national tournament in Fort Worth. And it was after that when my parents got separated, probably August of 83, my parents got separated because of his drinking. Mm -hmm. And that's when Jeff really went kind of into the mind control of like trying to not want me to, to be friends with my dad or, or love my dad, or he didn't want me to hang out with my dad. So if, if I went off for the weekend, because my dad would get us every other weekend. And if I went off and rode to the store with my dad and Jeff found out, he would throw a guilt trip on me. Oh, you love your dad more than me. I'm like, no dope. It's my dad. Like, just leave me alone. But I couldn't, uh, if you remember the situation with the girl on the bus on the way to California, mm-hmm. I couldn't be honest. He was just saying that to kind of, you know, make me tell him what he wanted to hear. Yeah. And I, I would, because if I didn't, then he would, you know, pop me on the back of the head or throw some guilt trip on me. Oh, you don't love me. And he was just a terrible person. He really was. Yeah. It sounded extremely uh, manipulating. And it, I don't know how you know smart he was i'm not even sure that at that time you could gauge how smart he was what did i mean looking back on it did jeff seem like a reasonably intelligent intelligent person he wasn't well educated i think he only had a sixth grade education but he's one of those people that was if he used his mind for the right thing i think he could have been uh smart yeah but he just his his world was flipped and he looked through it like, okay, how can I get away with this? How can I con someone out of that? And again, he was great at that. So yeah. in a sense, I, I got to give him credit. Like he, he, might, he wasn't a dope, but it's just he used his intelligence to bring people down, not bring people up. And that's the difference. Yeah. Um, Jeff and, and other pedophiles and, and people in his position will look for the type of situation you're in of. Well, I, I I did a book signing yesterday, and I was talking to someone who was a counselor, and she said that you know we were told to look for the child who uh, over eight. And I started to think about it, and I told her I was like, well, one of the one of the kids that Jeff had molested before me, and and during the time he was molesting me, still was a, uh, you know, he went to a private school. Uh, his dad had a, a significant job. I don't want to say it because I don't want to 
you know, mm-hmm. yeah. give anything away. But, um, you know, his mom and dad were married. They lived in a, a million dollar home. I know that's what his, I think was sold for two years ago. And so it wasn't a situation to where that was a busted up family. So mm-hmm. they just look for fa- uh, one of the tricks that Jeff would do is he would tell my parents that let's say that kid I'm talking about that his parents were no good. Uh, then they would tell my parents that the other karate kids parents were swingers. And then he'd tell the other one that the other uh, karate kid parent. So that way my parents didn't want to have anything to do with them. So they didn't communicate and they didn't figure out what Jeff was doing. So that was a, a pretty clever con movement on his part by not allowing the parents, not, not he didn't not allow them. It's just the parents really didn't want anything to do with each other. Cause he was telling different things about different people. So he was just controlling the situation all around. He had you to get away with it. Cause like I said, I mean, he wasn't just molesting me. I mean, he, I know for a fact he molested that other kid I was talking about. Um, another one of my dad's friends, kids, he molested. And he commi- he admitted to those three. Yeah. But I suspect that there were several other of the karate kids that were molested. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading in the book. I got about halfway through and I started to tear up because there's a good at least page and a half in the book where you directly communicate with another one of Jeff Doucette's victims. You don't name them by name, but you're speaking directly to them. And it's like, even right now I'm like getting a little, because it's, it's, it's fucking heavy. It's super heavy. Well, that was twofold because that's the, the, the friend of my dad. That's the kid I was talking to. Yeah. And I, I wrote that in 93 when his dad was still alive and I got to meet his dad and you know, his dad, the kid had, was always in trouble after Jeff, like he had you know, drugs and you know fighting, and I think he was he might be in jail now. But his dad always wanted what was best for him. His dad's actually the one that I think brought the attention to what Jeff was possibly doing to me before he even kidnapped me. And so I wanted to write that to him to say, look, I had the same thing happen to me by the same man, and if I can get over it, you can get over it. But I also like I said, I wrote that in 93, but I left it in the book. I thought about taking it out, but I left it in because to me, it wasn't just speaking to him. It was speaking to a lot of people who were victimized, and I felt a lot of people could identify with that. Yeah, I mean, it's really a, a strong, powerful part of the book that that stands out to me quite a bit. I almost took it out. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> um, I'm glad you told me this because now I'm glad. I'm really glad I didn't. Yeah, no, it's, I that that definitely stuck out with me. So going forward, so Jeff is running scams on people in the Baton Rouge area. He's taking their money. He's running scams. He's spending their money. And eventually this, this catches up with him. And, and and at the same time, he's teaching karate and you're going around and you're fighting in legitimate competitions. I remember reading at one point in one competition, I think it was for a state champion, Um you beat the shit out of Superfoot and everybody there. Uh, I kick Superfoot's ahead. <laughs> so, so why, why the overt aggression? I mean, was this all that was was going on with you? Did it come out during this tournament when you're like, okay, I can hit people and and get away with it? I'm gonna let loose. Like, was that? It wasn't conscious. It wasn't conscious in my mind. Um, to me, it was just we were. I mean, he. He made us train a lot. I mean, we were probably overtrained, mm-hmm. but it, it it wasn't like, oh, let me get out this aggression because I can't tell this secret that Jeff's doing this to me. It was just I was well conditioned, mm-hmm. I was well trained. We worked a lot, we worked hard, and it was just like I'm better, and I'm gonna kick your ass. And I I did. I kicked poor Superfoot's ass. <laughs> <laughs> so. So when you were competing like this, were you focused on competition? Was the molestation stuff, were you even thinking about that at the time? Not when I was on the field, no. Or, or you know, in the little, they would tape, it was like a 20 by 20 box that they would put. Mm-hmm. If, if you think of the karate kid, that's that's the best way I can think about it. Where I mean, that was a karate tournament like that, where you go until someone scores a point, they break, the judges, they give you the point, or they give you two points for a kick, one point for, normally it would go to five. First one to five would win, two points for a kick, one point for a hit. And uh, the one particular tournament I fought in with Superfoot, punches and kicks were both one point, and we went to three. And 
I, I, I scouted out Superfoot. I'd seen him fight a few times, and I knew what was coming. And when he, he huffed and puffed, and he ran, and he jumped up to, to kick me, I nailed him. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> yeah. When we when we when we do the 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 pre and post segments for the show, we do the pre segment. I'm just going to introduce you as the 1983 uh, Louisiana Karate State Champion Jody Blachet. Or, or you could say the <laughs> 1983 for his division, because I think I was a yellow belt at the time. I mean, because you have uh, it was like white, yellow, and orange belts would fight, and then you'd have like red, green, and then they would fight. Then you had the black belt division. So they did it by age and and belt rank. Yeah, and belt rank. So I was in the beginning belt rank. So I can say yeah, I was a the net because we fought at the pro ams in Fort Worth, which was the national tournament. So I won the national tournament for the 11 year old, not really good fighters. <laughs> so moving on. So you're, you're kicking ass in all these tournaments. Jeff is training you guys in karate and I, apparently he's doing a, a pretty decent job, but at the same time behind the scenes, he's molesting you. So going forward, he scams all these people and now he's got to get the hell out of Baton Rouge. What happens now? He was facing a court date and, you know, he couldn't come up with the money that he needed to pay the people back. And he said, look, if I leave, I'm taking you with me. And I don't know how he picked the day. It was just a random day, I think. And and he came to the house. He asked my mom if he could borrow the car. And he said, can Jody ride with me? She said, yep. She said, don't keep him going all day. We were going to go look at that house I was talking about earlier. They were his brother owned a carpet business, and so they were supposed to be installing carpet. So just so you know, I'm gonna go look and check on the carpet. And so we went riding, and we weren't going towards that house. We were going towards his brother's house, and I was like, "What's up?" And he said, "I'm not going there. I'm taking you. We're going to California." And so we drove. We went and picked up like a sleeping bag and some clothes at his brother's house, and we left and drove to his mother's house in Port Arthur. That was a Sunday. Um, Monday, we went to his uncle's house in Sulphur, Louisiana, which is right on the border of Texas and Louisiana, where I-10 crosses over. And he was trying to get money, borrow money so he could get bus tickets. And I don't know whether the uncle gave him money or not, but somehow he got enough money to get bus tickets to California. He told his mom that he was going to New York and he was going to drop me off in Baton Rouge because they had a stop in Baton Rouge. And she... I honestly, in my heart of hearts, believed that she believed that. But she wasn't completely innocent in her aiding and abetting a kidnapping because she was able to give Jeff his brother's birth certificate. So when Jeff got to his final destination, he could go get a driver's license under his brother's name. So she knew that something funky was going on. Well, she Just... knew Jeff was she knew Jeff was, you know, skipping town, but she didn't think Jeff was gonna take me with him. She thought yeah. that Jeff was dropping me off because she had talked to my mother. I want to say that Sunday night and when we didn't return on Monday, my mother contacted Mike Burnett with the Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department. And on Tuesday, they went to Port Arthur looking for us. They got there about noon and our bus left out of Orange, Texas around 11. So they just missed us. Mm. From this point on, you guys head over to California. You're staying out in L.A. Jeff is looking for a job. He's scamming people for money i believe he called another karate instructor and said hey we're heading to a tournament our van broke down can you give us uh, x amount of money and i'll pay you back when i get back the guy said yeah sure no problem and then you know keeps gives you guys enough to keep you going for another week so so yeah, now absolutely. yeah so now you're uh you're in la you are you go to D he takes you to Disneyland one day, drops you off at the mall another day. He's out and about doing whatever. Um, you're staying at the was it the the Samoa Hotel? It's called the Samoa Motel. It's at uh, 425 West Catella, uh, at the corner of Harbor and Catella. It's now in America's Best Value Inn, mm. and it's literally a block from Disneyland. So, I went back in 1997. Uh, I went to a friend of mine's. A uh, friend of mine's dad's wedding in San Diego and decided to stay a couple days and go to L.A. And as I was traveling from San Diego to L.A., I mean, I was taking I-5. I had to go right by it. I got off the interstate. I went to the front desk and said, can I get to room to key 38? And the guy was like, uh, why? And I was like, well, well, when I was in 1984, I was kidnapped here and the police came and busted in and da, 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 da. And he was like, well, I was working here back then. And I don't remember that. I'm like, well, trust me, it happened. <laughs> There's more to the story, but I didn't go into it. 
Yeah. But he gave me the key, and I just went in, and I took some photos of the hotel. So if you ever see the ESPN E60, and they show the actual – that's the actual room we were in. I took those pictures in 1997, and it was just kind of weird to be back. And I remember when I was there, I'm like, this is a shitty area. Like, this is terrible. It's like – like, just – Disney, I don't know how it is. And I think they fixed it up now, but in 1997, it was the don't. I, I don't know because a couple of years ago, they put out some documentary called like the Motel Kids of, of whatever, Orange County. And it's it's about all these like homeless families and kids living in these trashy motels literally right outside of the gates of Disneyland. That was me for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's funny is, is I watched the ESP and the E60 earlier and I saw that photo that you're talking about and I was just, you know, I thought it was a stock image or something, but it's interesting that you're like, no, that's the actual room. Well, and I, I don't know if I put this, I forget if I put this in the book or not, but how uh, 38 was Jeff's unlucky number. Yeah. You did put that in the book. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Cause we were saying it 38. My dad was 38 years old and guess what caliber the handgun was? Yeah, 38. Yeah. Yeah, so getting over to that, um, you're missing uh, Jeff being an idiot uh, was trying to tell your mom you guys were in New York and he was giving her the wrong time. He was giving her West Coast time when, you know, when she would ask what time or whatever. And and eventually he said, hey, call your mom, collect. When you called your mom, collect the FBI and everybody was there. They're trying to find you. Uh, your mom just gets on with the operator and said, "Hey, how much is it call? How much is this call? Where's the call?" And they go, "Oh, it's from the Samoa Hotel room." <laughs> you know, California. And, yeah, and so it, you were literally it, on the phone with your mom when the police busted in. Actually, he was on the phone with my mom. I was sitting closest to the door. And if you look at the picture that I took from what we were just talking about, that Samoa Motel, you can see. Behind the door where the doorknob would be, you could see spackle on the wall. So I'm suspecting that even in 1997, that was still the spackle that they had put on the wall when the cops came busting in the room and just boom, busted the door open. And I'm sure the doorknob went through the the sheetrock and they had guns on me, guns on him, guns in my face. Uh, And I was freaked out. Um, They took me outside and they sat me down by the pool and I'm shaking and shivering, and they're like, do you need a jacket? I'm like, no, I don't need a jacket. I'm scared. They're like, well, there's no reason for you to be scared. Well, I'm like, I'm scared now. I'm scared because y'all just had guns in my face <laughs> two seconds ago. Um, and that's the last I ever saw Jeff. They took him away. I didn't even see him once they took me out the room. They took him out a different way. I never saw him. And then they took me to the Anaheim Police Department where they, you know, interrogated me for two hours, it seemed like. Um, and then... They took me to the hospital where I was given a complete physical exam long with long Q-tips <laughs> and um, a female doctor. It was weird because I had a male nurse and a female doctor. And I remember she told me, she goes, um, you have an, I don't know, I think it puts this in the book. She's like, you have an enlarged rectum. Um, can you explain how that happened? And I was like, I think I take big dumps. Like I was just trying to come up with an excuse. But uh, the the muscle had been stretched out for the, you know, nine, ten months he had been having an anal sex with me. And when they got the hospital report back, they had, you know, spermatozoa on the rectal slide. So mm-hmm. I didn't tell him. The hospital report came back, and that's who eventually – the I guess it wasn't even – was it called DNA back then? The DNA I, evidence is what yeah, got yeah. it. Yeah, so it's a couple things to note that during this period when when Jeff was on the run with you, um, and and it's and it's you mentioned in the book how not everybody who's kidnapped is you know somebody jumps out and grabs them. You knew this was going to happen, and you went willingly. This this was an an abduction, I suppose. Oh, you know what? I t- um, an abduction. And then the kidnap, I think it's an abduction when you take somebody and it's a kidnapping when you make demands. So when you call a ransom or something, which Jeff, he, he eventually did with your mother. Yeah. He said, if you ever want to see Jody alive again, you'll meet me in New York. And that made it, you know, from an abduction, I think to an aggravated kidnapping. That's that's when the FBI got involved, right? Yeah. Aggravated kidnapping is life imprisonment in in Louisiana. So Jeff, there was a good chance Jeff was going to jail for the rest of his life because the same people that were in the justice system that, you know, got my dad probation would have been the same people that made sure he went to jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. 
And and another thing you noted in the book that during this time when you guys were on the run, Jeff was so busy um, and stressed out that the the rape and the the molestation and all that wasn't as frequent as it had been over the past 10 months or so. Yeah, I mean, I guess the stress had gotten to him. I did mention where that one night where he got a room at the Hilton, I think it was like $85 in downtown mm-hmm. LA, that, you know, he, that was an unpleasant night for me. And then there was a, another night, but uh, maybe two or three times while we were on the run. So he took me February 19th, it was caught February 29th. It was a leap year. And so maybe he, he molested me three times within those days. I mean, two days we were on a bus, so he couldn't molest me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it it was less frequent. But you know, I guess in a way, I'm glad he did it when he did it because there was still physical evidence, you know, on my crime scene body. Yeah, yeah, that's God. That's so, that's surreal to hear. You know, um, so going forward, cops found you. Eventually, you're flown back to Baton Rouge. This is all on the news. That was you, in New Orleans. Oh yeah, New Orleans, New Orleans. Um, so this is all on the news. So you you coming back and and they got this and uh, you your parents are they seemed very relieved and you're just kind of hanging out and they ask you how you feel and you just say I don't know. I don't know. Um, I was pissed. I was not very happy because. I left L.A. at 1.15 in the morning. I got to New Orleans at 6 o'clock in the morning. I slept the whole flight. I had a window seat, but I you know, was facing the Pacific Ocean when we took off, so I couldn't see nothing. And so I go to sleep, and when I wake up and I walk off the plane with my black hair and, you know, windbreaker, and I walk up 10 feet from my parents, they don't recognize me, and I see the news camera, I was like, what are they doing here? Yeah. And... You can't you can't see it, but my mother leans over and gives me a hug and she whispers in my ear, you know, like you better smile or you know, pretend like you're happy to be home or something like that. And then then you see me like after she leaves the hug, you see me smile, and that's when like John Pastorek, he's he still works for Channel Two in Baton Rouge. He still works here. And uh he's like, you know, well, what do you think about all that? And I'm like, I don't know, like like what do you Get away from me. Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really because it's hard to tell if you're uncomfortable if you're happy if you're upset i mean it's like really hard to get a read on you you know you can get you can tell your parents are really relieved and uh you can tell that your brother kind of just doesn't give a shit what's going on but you can't tell (laughs) but you can't tell what's going on with you you're just kind of like that's that's interesting when you when they show the shot of me and my parents and my brother walking through the corridor at the new orleans airport and i got my hands in my pocket my hair's dyed black I look like a child that had been kidnapped, sexually abused for a year. I, I looked the part. Now, looking back at it, I can, I'm can. i like, oh, my God, how can they not tell? I mean, my hands are in my pocket. I'm closed off. Yeah. I'm just uh, I'm just unhappy, miserable. And people wonder, like, why were you not happy to be back home? I was happy to be back home. I was happy to know that, you know, Jeff probably would never be able to touch me again. But – you know, I wasn't happy that now everyone's going to know what happened, which I don't think may have happened. But two weeks later, if you want to jump to that, daddy let everybody know. And back in 1984, they didn't go, well, we're not going to disclose the victim's name. Mm. In 1984, they were like, yo, Jody Ploche was molested by Jeff Doucette. The, and, and his dumb lawyer, I didn't like him, Foxy Sanders, he said that Jeff would give me gay magazines, which wasn't true. I understand he's trying to get my my dad off, but like, how is that like helping? Like saying that he gave me gay magazines. I mean, if you're gonna be honest a little bit, yeah, yeah. So um, your hair is black because Jeff made you dye it and was telling everybody that you were father and son, which adds a really fucking weird dynamic to all this. Um, yeah, because it's twenty five. Yeah, I was eleven. So what Jeff was what 14 15 when he had you 14 when he had me yeah so could could be true eh, i don't know maybe but it's just i don't know it's just a fucking weird thing so um but i mean there's there's a lot of not normal stuff with all the bus ride everything i mean people people have to read your book 
and really see all the crazy shit that you went through at this time. Like we are just kind of like scratching the surface on it. Like they really got to dig into the book because believe me, there's fucking more and it's, it's out there. Like your life at this time was fucking crazy. Yeah. I would not wish that life on anybody. It was, it was, it was not pleasant at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine from reading about it. It sounds like absolute fucking hell. Um, that's why when I'm, I'm talking about Andrew before this and I'm like, hey, we're going to have Jody on. And and Andrew's like, you know, OK, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, you don't have to be like that with Jody. He's he's pretty open and, and he accepts what happened to him. He has a really good mindset on everything. And, you know, you don't have to tiptoe around him and all that, which is fucking crazy considering what you've been through. All right. So going forward, um, you're back. You did the rape kit, but you were adamant. When anybody asked you, you would not give up Jeff Doucette. You, you, anybody, social workers, police, everybody questioned you. They put you under the fucking fire. Some, a couple detectives for, I think it was a couple hours. Like they really took it to you and you would not crack. You would, did Jeff touch you? No, you're adamant. Why is that? Well, because I figured Jeff being the con man that he was, wasn't going to jail for the rest of his life. And if they went to Je- Jeff and said, look, the Ploche kid, you know, admitted that you had been sexually abusing, that when Jeff got off, he would come back and somehow get me. I don't know what get me means, but it, some kind of bodily harm. And so I was like, I will not, will not under any circumstances rat Jeff out because I knew the hospital report was coming. Mm-hmm. And I knew once the hospital report came out, then I, I made up my mind. That's when I would come clean. Because I couldn't deny it anymore. So the cops were, yeah, they were brutal. Like I didn't have an advocate sitting with me to make sure that the cop was asking me nice questions. They were not nice. They went back to my parents and they said either the, either that man didn't touch that boy or he'll never admit it. And they were wrong on both occasions. So when Mike Barnett told my mother, this would have been a week after I returned. So I was returned March 1st. This would have been, I think it was March 9th because it was a week before the shooting. So March 9th, the hospital report comes back. Mike Burnett tells my parents and my mother sits me down and Mike had told my mother, like, you need to remain calm. This boy probably knows more about sex than you do. So you just need to just stay calm and don't overreact because your reaction could be worse than the actual act of what happened to me itself. And so when she told me that the test came back positive, I tried to play stupid. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Which I knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, it means Jeff fooled with you. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, he did. And it felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulder, like a, a, a you know, big zit had been popped or a balloon had popped. And I, I was just like, OK, I feel I feel wonderful. And then she we talked for a little bit. And then she was like, all right, well, you know, go play. And so I got on a bike and I rode to my friend Crystal's house. And I remember riding the bike and they were playing in the ditch and I jumped off the bike and got in the ditch and that was it. Yeah. All that, that shit I'd been keeping secret for the past year. It was the lie was over. It was done. So that was was a good thing. You credit your mother with her being calm and her reaction with you being able to bounce back from it as as well as you did that uh, you go into more depth in the book but saying that you know her acting that way made it so this was not a life ruining moment this was something that you could recover from this was okay yeah it really it really was comforting that she didn't freak out meanwhile a week later (laughs) yeah yeah let's talk about that Well, well let me just say this one thing so I told her not to tell daddy. Like, don't tell daddy what I'm telling you. And she told me, okay. Unbeknownst to me, she felt that he was my father and he had an obligation to know. And so she was giving him the information of what I was telling her. And my dad became obsessed with, you know, did he make Jody suck his dick? Did he make Jody suck his dick? And only on three occasions did he attempt to make me perform oral sex on him, mm-hmm. which I purposely, like most wives do, didn't do a good job. And <laughs> so that really wasn't an issue. Um, 
But because of that information, and, and I don't know why my dad was obsessed over that or not. I guess maybe he's worried about me turning gay. Yeah. Um, that information was relayed to my father, and I think that's kind of what put him over the edge. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the book that that that's what that's what really broke him and that he was he was very focused on that one particular sex act. And after that happened, it's very well documented what happens next. So your dad acquires a uh, a 38 handgun and uh, he just came to the house and picked it up. Just got it. Just came and got it out of out of the closet or wherever. Huh? Yeah, yeah they were. My parents were separated. And he came over the night before the 15th. Because we had seen when me and Jeff were in L.A., we had seen him filming an episode of Hill Street Blues, and it was it was airing that night. And LSU was playing Dayton in the NCAA tournament, March Madness. And he came to the house. We watched the game. We watched Hill Street Blues, and then he went in the back and got the gun. And then my mother was out there talking to him for it seemed like two hours, maybe it was an hour. And I asked her like, "Did you tell her? Did you tell him?" what we had talked about. And she, she assured me, no later. She told me she was trying to get the gun, but he took the gun. So he had it. But at this point he didn't know when Jeff was coming back. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the Friday, cause this was Thursday night. It wasn't until the Friday, March 16th that he was having lunch at a local restaurant about a quarter of a mile up from the news station where, and my dad worked there for a while. He bowled on the news team's bowling team. He knew all the people cause he hung out at this, particular restaurant right down the street from the news station mm-hmm. and the guy asked him he said hey when are you you know when are they bringing your boy back talking about jeff and daddy said i think he's back already he said they won't tell me and he goes well i'll, I'll go find out for you so he went to the payphone, made a call oh he'll be back at nine o'clock tonight i think in a book i put nine thirty, but i think he, the the flight was 908 yeah that he arrived and uh my dad with that knowledge with the obsession of whether or not jeff made me suck his dick um he drove out to False River, which is a lake about 30 miles northwest of Baton Rouge. He drove out there. He made it to uh, a convenience store, called his friend. Then he turned around and he went back to Baton Rouge to the airport. And he put the gun in his boot. And if you if you see the video, you can see his right pant leg is up where he had pulled the gun out of his boot. Mm. And another thing that you can't tell on the video is that that wall was indented. It was a, a bank of payphones that kind of was indented. So if you're walking down that corridor, you cannot see him until you get, you get right up on him. Oh yeah. And so he noticed the camera. He set up across from the camera. He was on the phone with his best friend, um, basically telling him I killed this motherfucker. And the friend called the sheriff's department and said, look, you need to get in touch with Mike Burnett. My friend's at the airport. He's about to shoot a suspect that they're getting off the plane. And, before that could happen, they came walking down the hall, and Mike Burnett was in front looking for suspicious characters, my dad. Mm-hmm. And Mike was talking, I mean, uh, Jeff was talking to Bud Connors. He was the other sheriff deputy that, that went with him to California to bring Jeff back. And you can see him talking back and forth. And basically, Bud was saying, Look, if you see anybody, just hit the ground. I'll get on top of you. And, and pow, my dad shoots mm-hmm. him. And yeah. Mike Burnett yells, whoa, Gary, Gary, why, Gary? No, wait, why, Gary, Gary, why? The name of the book's Why, Gary, Why? But he said, why, Gary, Gary, why? And he runs over and he grabs my dad and basically keeping Bud from shooting him because Bud did not know my father. And you can see Bud reaching for his gun. Mm-hmm. Bud walks over to my dad, puts the gun in my dad's head, on my dad's head, and says, you son of a bitch. And he turns around and looks at Jeff's dead body and you can hear him go, God damn. And he kneels down. And you can hear my dad crying on the video and, you know, Mike Burnett's kind of, you know, holding him. And when they turn Jeff over, if you go to my website, jodyploche.net, I have the unedited video on there. And when they turn Jeff over, the blood's just gushing out of his ear like a, someone had turned on a water faucet. And Bud kneels down and he... Reaches in his wallet, says, I call the sheriff's department. You know, I'm, I'm with the sheriff's department and this uh, security guard, <laughs> you know, rent a cop or whatever. He comes walking up and looks at Jeff's dead body. He's like, what the fuck you want me to do? <laughs> like, this motherfucker's dead. <laughs> and, and so Bud gets up and looks at my dad. And I'm not going to 
quote myself to say, oh, this is the exact quote, but it's something like, why in the fuck would you do that? And that's when my dad looked at that Bud Connor and he said, if he'd have done that to your family, you would have done the same thing too. You don't know. And Bud kneels down and closes Jeff's eyes because his eyes were wide open. Yeah, that's that was the freaky part. His eyes are just glaringly open as blood's pouring out of his head. And it's just it's a crazy little uh, situation. Yeah, I th- he said so, Bud says something to the effect of uh, j- just deflated. Like, why did you goddamn do that, Gary? Yeah, it made, that was the quote. Yeah. 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 And uh, and, and and you, you know, you hear your dad crying. It's just. You know, it's just a crazy thing to watch. I sent it to a couple people and I was like, hey, you see this? Uh, you know, we're about to have this, the dude that was molested by this guy on our show. And our friends were like, holy fuck. What's funny is I, the first time I saw that was when I was a kid. I was watching Traces of Death. So, part two. Part two. Traces of Death, part two. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was. Watch the video again. My dad's kind of looking down and then you see him look up. And when he looks up, that's when he says, if he'd have done that to your family, you would have done the same thing, too. So watch it again, maybe with some headphones on so you can yeah. turn it up as hard as you can. But that, that's when he does it, because my dad kind of gets pissed off because, you know, Bud's like, why in the fuck would you do that? Why in the goddamn hell did you yeah. do that? And my dad looks up like, if he'd have done it to your family, you'd fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what's, what's crazy about this part is that in the book, you say um, – everybody's telling you your dad did this for you. Your dad did this for you. And you, in the book, you say he didn't do this for me. He didn't ask my permission. I I didn't want Jeff dead. I actually was looking forward to Jeff going to prison for the rest of his life. Um, uh, you know, because if you remember, I'm not going to say it, but if you remember what he told me what happened to him, if he went to prison, I was kind of hoping that would happen to him. Yeah. What was behind this? Was this, was this your dad? seeking revenge and i'm sure your dad did feel that he was doing it for you but you say in the book and this this is another thing that stood out very very much to me is you say that jeff was such a broken person that he he seeked the attention of children sexually and your in in turn your dad became such a broken person that someone had to die that's what my dad told me. He said, you know, I couldn't live with myself. Um, he figured my dad figured he was going to be killed that night as well. So for anyone to think that my dad was in his right mind when he did what he did, he absolutely was not. My dad was crazy. And most sane people don't go shooting someone 10 feet from a TV camera. So to me, the sad thing is, my dad was a great guy, and I, I, I tried to honor him. Now, he, he was a flawed man. Um, you know, he had a drinking problem, but he was a kind-hearted soul. He would pick up stray animals. He would, you know, feed squirrels with critter corn, even though our cats were going to kill the squirrels because he wasn't thinking about it. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was a kind, kind-hearted man. And for my dad... It, well, and I tell the story about when, when he cried for Jeff. He was like, Jeff's so pitiful. He don't have anybody. And he took him to our family dinner on Sunday uh, with my grandparents. I mean, that's the kind of man my dad was. Gave him the shirt, literally the shirt off his back. Let him shower, took him to the family dinner. And for this man to be screwing his freaking kid, you know, it, it just violated my dad's sense of trust. Like, they, I don't think they, they knew that people were like that. I mean, I know it sounds stupid because mm. 1984, it was never talked about. And so for my dad to find out that this man not only, you know, violated his son and this was a man that he went, he went on road trips to Houston with him. Like this was somebody that he allowed into the family, the guilt that he probably felt that Jeff was such a shithead mm. that he made my dad kind of kill him is the saddest thing. Cause my dad was a fucking good person. Yeah. So your dad, who is already very well known in Baton Rouge. Uh, well, like I said, my dad could get away with murder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In in theory and practice. So your, your dad kills Jeff Doucette as he's leaving the airport 
And now people are fucking rallying behind your dad. Your dad becomes somewhat of a hero. How do you feel about it? Go to Twitter. He still is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I still people are still praising him. I posted the video the other day and people are still giving him props. So like and and this is crazy. And and your dad didn't do one day of jail time. I believe other people paid for his bond, paid for his legal defense. And your dad got no jail time. He got 300 hours community service and five years probation. But the sad thing, well, I don't think it's a sad, I don't know if it's a sad thing, but the crazy thing about it is like my dad's name has become an adjective. Like people would be like, oh, they should Gary Plosha his ass. <laughs> How, how do you how do you feel about this? I, it, what's funny is it is in the book when you talk about when your father passed. I, I and I'm paraphrasing you here at best. You say that you know when when your dad passed the the world was a little shittier when he was gone. When Jeff Doucette passed, even though you didn't want him killed, the world was a little better when he was gone. And like, yeah. So how how do you? That's such a hard thing to grasp, you know. Well, I'll say this. At 47, I couldn't think of a better person to have been shot and killed and have 27 million views on YouTube (laughs) than Jeff Doucette. So at the time, being an 11-year-old, yeah, I was upset with what Daddy did. But at 47, and again, I don't condone uh, vigilante justice or, you know, violent behavior. But it happened, and it couldn't have happened to a better person. He was that big of a terrible, terrible person. It's, it's not as, it's basically saying not as if he didn't deserve it, (laughs) you know, it's, he earned it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So everybody rallied behind your dad, your dad, for the most part, got off. I mean, he, he got off with manslaughter when they initially booked him on second degree murder. He very easily could have done prison time. It didn't happen. I, I remember reading that everybody, for the most part, was pretty supportive. Um, one kid tried to bully you and and said something to the effect of, well, uh, at least I didn't let this guy kidnap me and fuck me in the ass or something. And you said that everybody wanted his fucking head on a stick by the end of the, uh, the yeah, day. Yeah, I, I didn't have to do nothing. Uh, everybody else was like, what? He said that? Oh, let's kick his ass. And he got off the bus and he ran home. <laughs> so, so it wasn't – I mean – you had a good support system and, and you I mentioned did. that. Yeah. You mentioned that quite a few times in the book that you had a great support system and how valuable that was. And I worried about that part of the book where I, I kind of acknowledged my friends in middle school. Um, but I felt it was important because I felt they were a great support system. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the prettiest girl in school was saying hello to me. And, and that, that meant a lot. And, and my friend Derek, who got me that signed program, from LSU mm. basketball team, you know, he didn't have to do that. That was just something that he took upon himself. And I don't even know if he was even thinking, Hey, you know, this kid was kidnapped, sexually abused, his dad shot someone. Let me do something nice for him. I don't even know if that was in his, his, his motivation, but he knew I loved LSU basketball and he got me that program and all that meant a lot. Going for it from there, you end up going into the field of, sexual abuse education so it's it really like it's not something you ever ran from it's not something you're ashamed of it's not something that holds you down it's something that you use as a tool now to help people and there's a huge chunk of your book that is about sexual abuse education and i i mean it's literally from one second i'm reading about your life and then the next second, I'm reading. I'm reading a textbook. It, it, it's that helpful. And 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 we're going through over. We're going over all the what to look for, how to talk to your children, educate them about this, how to handle the situation if it is to happen, how to minimize the risk of this happening, things like that. And th- and this is chapters of this. So. You you now know your shit, and this is this is something that you've I mean you you've joined a, a an organization back when you were in college, Men Against Violence. Like you you've definitely become a very staunch and strong advocate for this. I mean, where did 
where did this take you from from this point and how do you how do you balance this with your life well the the turning point in and i guess in my life was in 1991 i went on the Geraldo rivera show and i Honestly, went because I wanted a free trip to New York City, and I just wanted to kind of hang out, and, and, and that was it. It wasn't until after the show ended, I got a call again from Mike Burnett, who said, look, um, I have to tell you something. We have a kid that came forward after seeing you on the Geraldo show who had been sexually abused by his pastor, and he came forward and said, after seeing you on the Geraldo Rivera show – came forward. And so they arrested this guy. Now, this is the, the crazy thing. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine bought a copy of the book and he texted me and said, Hey, what was the name of that guy that the, the pastor that was uh, molesting the kids? What was his name? And I sent him his name. Well, he's, he's like an IT guy. So he knows how to work computers. Well, mm -hmm. he told me that the guy pled guilty in 1992 mm -hmm. to molesting the kids. He got sentenced to 15 years in jail but was out in 1998 where he got arrested again for making child pornography in Florida. And then he jumped bail and went to South America. And I think he got arrested in like 2011, uh, no, 2011. So this guy was first pled guilty in 92, 93, no, 92, and wasn't really put in jail for good until 2011 so he how many kids has this guy molested yeah since then so, yeah. so wow. that's the turning point when i when i found out wow like i went on Geraldo just to go on the show for fun and i literally stopped two kids from being sexually abused i was like i i need to to do something about this and that's why i joined men against violence when i was in college that's why i ended up moving to pennsylvania working at victim services center of montgomery county in norristown pennsylvania just outside of philadelphia um, for seven years, I became the supervisor of community education programs, doing prevention programs throughout Montgomery County from pre-K to college. Man, it's <laughs> – so you've lived a, a fucking crazy life. What do you do these days? I know people are familiar. I, I'll bring it up. When I mentioned that you're going to be on the show, people are like, well, I'm familiar with that. So people know about your childhood. They might have seen you on Geraldo in the 90s. They might know about your advocacy since then because you've spoken publicly and been on other TV shows recently, the ESPN uh, E60 episode and things in recent years. But I mean, what's life like for you right now? Um, right now, I'm trying to promote the book, like doing these interviews. Mm -hmm. um, I've went to work for my brother-in-law for when I moved back in 2005, my dad had had a stroke in April and I moved back in July of 1995 or 2005. And literally it was like two months before Katrina. And so after that, I was working for my brother-in-law who owns a trucking company. Mm -hmm. And I did that for off and on for nine years. And I quit in 2016 and I started working back on the book in February of 2017. So I worked on that. And in the meantime, I was doing like meaningless, terrible jobs like Uber, Lyft. They have a, <laughs> a thing down here, waiter, and they stink. Um, yeah. But I did that meanwhile while trying to work on the book. So now that the book came out in uh, late August, I've just been doing you know, hopefully a few book signings, interviews. I've been mailing off a lot of books. Just trying to get uh, promotion, trying to get awareness about it, because if people don't know about the book, they can't, buy, they won't buy it. Yeah. But uh, I do, I do feel like it is a valuable tool, valuable resource, and I wanted the book to be that. I want it to be educational, entertaining, and inspiring. And I think I accomplished that. I oh yeah, definitely. I. I mean, you even offered to send me a copy and I said, no, I'll be more than happy to buy one. I went and bought a copy and I got it and I literally read the entire book that day. It's I, I could not stop reading. It's such a good book. But at the same time, like you said, I mean, it's it's entertaining. It's inspiring. Um, and it's educational. And I mean, I, I can't recommend it enough. I hope everybody who hears this goes and buys a copy. It's it's worth every penny. And um yeah, I mean, I, I I think we'll wrap it up here, and, and I want to thank you for coming on. The the title of the book is Why Gary Why, and you can go to Amazon.com. You can get the paperback, or you can get the Kindle version. 
the paperbacks nineteen ninety nine and the Kindle versions nine ninety nine. And uh, you know, if you want to know a secret, get the Kindle version. I make more money. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh shit! You should have told me. I got a paperback like a sucker. Well, the, I mean, the paperback's fine as well. I, I look. You know what? I didn't write the book for money. I wrote the book for inform- so people could have the knowledge. That's what I. I mean, I would rather if you give your book to someone who gives your book to someone. I would rather that and go back to working some other job for the money. I'd rather people read the book and learn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they will learn. They will learn. And I learned so much reading your book that I, 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 I didn't think it was possible. You know, I devour textbooks and stuff all the time, but I pick up, you know, Jody Pluchet from uh, Baton Rouge's book and hey, I, I learned some stuff. So it's a great book and it's 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 worth reading and, and you will learn stuff from it. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. And um, if you ever want to come back on, just uh, let me know and we'll make it happen. Hey, thank you for having me. It means a lot.